0: So here's what we're going to do today. We've been in our series Church on Mission, and this theme has, uh, we've been following this for several weeks, and we'll be continuing in this for just a few more. Um, We have been talking about a lot of different things. We've covered a lot of ground as we consider this call to be a church on mission. Right? So we've talked about being part of God's ever-growing ecclesia, that is the gathering of those summons or summoned or called out ones. We talked about embracing our sentness in the spirit of John 20, 21, that Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I am sending you out into the world. And that is a part of us being a church on mission. We talked about our identity as sojourners in a land that is not our own, as we are citizens of God's kingdom come. First Peter 2 talks about that. We remembered the persecuted church, uh, and we've spent time focusing in that direction, remembering our brothers and sisters in Christ who live under the shadow of persecution, who deal with faith in different ways than many of us have to. And uh, I was very moved by your generous response and even supporting a special offering that we did to support the persecuted church and just beautiful to see you saying, I wanna be a part of that. And I trust that those gifts are accompanied by prayers for our brothers and sisters as well. This too is part of being a church on mission. We talked about our uh, identity as sojourners or exiles and how in that identity we are called to bless our city. And many of you took seriously the call to say, I want to be a blessing to my neighbor uh, in various ways, at the very least to begin by praying for my neighbors, getting to know them by name and praying for them and trusting that God will work in their life as he pours out his blessing over them. Last week we talked about our missional call, uh, taking a local as well as global uh, impact in the spirit of Acts chapter 1-8, which is a passage that we look at very often. Today what I'd like to do, in the spirit of church on mission, is I want to explore the title of today's message, which is Conformed to His Image. So the song we just sang, Old for New, is very appropriate for us as we think, what does it mean to be conformed to the image of of Christ, that God is right now working in your life, that He is stirring and that He is shaping you, and for those of us who are open to the work and the leading of the Holy Spirit, we can see Him doing that as He conforms us to His image. Uh, I want you to read with me in second Corinthians chapter three that 's going to be our primary passage today we 're going to read verses twelve to eighteen, although i 'd like to reference a handful of other parts of this passage. Uh, Today, from the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth uh, under this theme of conform to his image. So 2 Corinthians 3, let's read verses 12 to 18 together. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face, so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. May God have blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You know, this passage of scripture is deeply nuanced as Paul is actually unpacking an Old Testament reference that we're going to look at from Exodus chapter 34 with the veil of Moses. But this whole passage is about the idea of that veil, which is a barrier to seeing the glory of God and how through Christ that is removed. And I have to think to myself that a church that understands this is a church that will be ready to be on mission in the various places in which God calls us. A church that does not understand this, though it is a complicated metaphor, it's going to take us a little bit of time to unpack a couple of the pieces. In fact, I'm not sure that I can fully unpack all of it today. You could probably dwell on this passage for a long time because the theological implications are huge to what Paul is referring to here. But for the ones that we will go over today, my trust is that it will empower you to understand this simple concept, what does it mean to live without the veil? Now, I realize this is a little bit of a loaded subject in a season like this when some of you are wearing masks and some of you are not, and this is not about that debate at all. Um, but to think about what does it mean spiritually to live outside of the veil and understand to, to, uh, what it means for, for God to do that through Christ. Uh, when I think about this idea of, of faces being covered, in a lot of Paul's writing, when you read it, he talks and references a lot about the glory of God and, and the, the ability for us to perceive it or not. And so this whole idea here is there's a covering so that our gaze will not be drawn to something that is, in this case, too much for us to fully understand in the Old Covenant, And so as Paul talks about that, this idea of covering faces, one of the things that came up uh, in my mind, I remembered this story, and I'm sure I've shared it in some settings before. Uh, but when I was a youth pastor, when Amy and I were doing youth ministry, like a hundred years ago, we were getting a group of kids ready to go to the Life Conference, which is happening this Sunday. They're doing the Life Conference. It's the national conference for our youth in our denomination. And so we were doing youth ministry, so we took a group of kids, country kids from Huntington, Pennsylvania, and we took them out to Columbus, Ohio, to do this conference. And we were a little worried because I'm thinking, like, these kids are a little naive. They don't spend a lot of time in this city. They've got to be aware of their surroundings and stuff. And so I remember rallying them together one day, and I said, guys, look, uh, the, the walk from the hotel to the conference center is kind of long, there's a lot of blocks, and stuff. I just need you to be very aware, we're using the buddy system and taking care and being careful, but you're not in your little hometown anymore, you need to be aware of your surroundings, you need to be smart, okay, yeah, yeah, we'll be smart, okay, so Amy and I are walking to the conference. And we look across the road, three or four lanes of traffic, and we see some of our students walking on the other side. And they have decided that they are going to attempt to get from the hotel to the conference center completely blindfolded. So I'm looking at my kids walking, and they're walking on the sidewalk like this. I'm thinking to myself, I'm so glad I have the influence that people listen, you know, they understand. And Amy looked at me, and she said, "I, I think they took your speech to heart. I think they really got it, what you were trying to say there. This idea of a face that is covered, that is unable to perceive, that is unable to see is what Paul is referencing here. And the passage teaches us, among many other things, what a church on mission is actually called to do. What a church on mission is called to be within the context of Christ's covenant with his bride. And so it's deep uh, it's nuanced, but we're going to cover a couple of pieces with it today. And specifically, we're going to look at this, that a church on mission will know the boldness, the freedom, and the glory of the gospel. If you're writing notes, you can take, the, take the, those three words down in your notes. Boldness, freedom, and glory of the gospel. So our point one is this. We are marked by gospel boldness this is an earmark of a church that is on mission. We are marked by gospel boldness. Paul says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. And I love that. We are very bold. There's no, no uh, bones about it. He says, Because of the hope that we have, we are very bold. Now, when I think about this source of hope, Paul is actually referencing something sort of interesting here. I need to back up just a little bit. In verse 7 of this chapter, he, he says this, If the ministry of death, harsh words, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. What's he referring to? In Exodus chapter 34, when Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments, this is the the, the commandments written in stone, but why is Paul calling this the ministry of death? Well, we know as you go through his teachings that he often refers to the law as that which brings death. It reveals in us our shortcomings, but it doesn't have the power to regenerate us. And so this was the challenge of the old covenant of people that were convinced to follow the law of God meant they needed to do certain things, but they were never able to actually do it. And so time and time again, and generation and generation again, person and person again, we see a failure to uphold the law to the standard of God. And so Paul talks about this. He says, I wouldn't know what sin was unless the law showed it to me. But when the law showed it to me, death sprung up in me. And then he says things like, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? So we actually see this theme all throughout Paul's writing. Much of what he was writing to his churches was to free them from the notion of the law and to introduce them to the freedom of the Spirit, which doesn't mean that the law goes away. It means that the law is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ, whom we worship. So we are marked because of that hope by gospel boldness. I talked a couple of weeks ago about an example of the disciples showing gospel boldness when it came to preaching of the gospel. So when in Acts 4, they're brought in before the Sanhedrin and the, the religious leaders who say, you must not preach more in this name, that to them was the red line to which they would say, we have got to obey God rather than men. We are going to do this. We are going to be bold. Now I think in our day and age today, we're bold kind of all over the place, but don't necessarily know how to direct it productively. That's why everybody's angry and fighting with each other over what I would call much less than gospel-relevant issues. So we can confuse boldness with stubbornness. We can confuse boldness with defiance. We can embrace those things and then just put a stamp of boldness on us. I'm just being bold in my faith. You can get easily confused. Boldness comes not from our incessant need to be right. Can anybody say amen to that? I mean, you know somebody in your life right now, and at some point or another, you are the person that has an incessant need to be right. And so you will become, quote unquote, bold in that direction. But our boldness is not based on our incessant need to be right. Our boldness, as Paul is describing it, is based on a right standing that we didn't earn. And this is so vitally important for us. If we're going to be a church on mission, our goal is not to be right. Our goal is to show a right standing that we have inherited, has been imputed to us, even though it's something that we didn't and couldn't, by the way, ever earn. This is gospel boldness, a right standing that we didn't earn. When God looks at you, do you know this today? When God looks at you, he looks at your life and if you're honest you know the faults you know the gaps you know the dark spots you know the blemishes but when God looks at you he sees the imputed righteousness of Christ just like when God looked at perfect Jesus Christ on the cross he saw the sin that you committed that was imputed to him now he sees the righteousness of Christ in you and in your life You you can't make that happen somebody said amen I amen. Your amen. We can't make that happen, but this is the hope that we have, and this is why we're bold. You know, if our boldness is a result of our desire to be right, we will find ourselves becoming hard and unmoldable. We'll actually never become the church that God wants us to be—church on mission. When we're hard and unmoldable, focused on ourselves and our own achievements, but rather when we find our boldness in Him. For all the reasons I've just said, it forces us to stay humble. Because I can't take credit for it. I can show gratitude for it. I can proclaim the greatness of our God. I can speak on mission. I can live out that mission. I just can't take credit for it. So it keeps me humble. So Paul says, since we have this kind of hope, since you've got this kind of hope, you can be bold. And that's exactly what we are. He says, not like Moses who wore the veil. And now he begins to introduce this metaphor that kind of carries throughout the time. And it is an interesting and nuanced metaphor, right? Because Moses, in, in Exodus 34, he goes up and he spends time in the presence of the Lord and he gets the law. And this is what it actually says in verse 34 and 35. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So, I mean, Moses in the presence of God, literally coming out like radioactive, so the people are like, we don't really know what to do with you, and so the veil was there to actually mute the presence of God's glory for old covenant people who weren't ready for it, okay? Now, Paul, bringing this back up, is saying the problem is that we're moving into the new covenant and people are still stuck in the old. They have a veil over their hearts so that they can't see that Jesus Christ was actually the fulfillment that the old covenant was going to point to. So we're marked by gospel boldness. Point two that we're gonna look at here today is we're infused with gospel Freedom. Verse 16 of the passage we're looking at when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Somebody say amen to that, right? The veil actually gets removed. This is actually the spiritual awakening that many of you have had. You know, when, when God shows you something, and you tell me if this has happened to you, you get to the place that you say, How did I not know this before? How many of you have experienced that in your walk with Jesus, right? You go, How didn't I see this, How didn't I see this before? I read this passage 50 times. And I never saw what it was actually saying to me. And then all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit gets your attention and God removes something. This is actually part of the joy of following Christ is that you're never too old for the freedom of the veil being removed from your life. And then verse 17, now when the Lord, now the Lord is spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So this is our second point. We are infused with gospel freedom. Now here's where I find it to to get kind of interesting. The veil that we're referring to creates an inability to see or encounter the presence of God. If you are living a life that is marked by a veiled presence, in other words, you are not perceiving the presence of God and you are not revealing the presence of God because you're sort of living a veiled or muted presence, How in the world do we become a church on mission? Like, what is it that we actually have to to deliver to a world in need, to deliver to a broken world, to show, except for the presence of Christ that actually inhabits us? So this, this is one of those things that's so cool because it's a message for you. Like, you need this message. You have to understand, Jesus, you need to re- remove the veils from my life so I'm living in the, in the reality of the glory of God. But it's also a message for the world because the church will never be a church on mission if she doesn't understand this. The veil, so, so, so don't miss this. Their minds were hardened. It says, to this day, they read the Old Covenant. The same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Now, I find this to be fascinating, too. You could think, well, Paul's being kind of critical, right? He's kind of being a little picky. He's, he's, he's talking about people who don't believe like him, and then he's just saying, you know, they're just veiled, and that's their problem. He's talking about himself. He, if, if anybody outside of Paul, who knows better what it means to be living a life of religious fervor behind a veil that was actually marking what Jesus was doing. Did Paul actually have his own aha moments when the veils were lifted? Absolutely, he knows of what he speaks and so he's speaking himself. I find this interesting though, and don't miss it, that the veil that we're speaking here is a religious barrier. We often, who have grown up in the church, think of the barriers to us thriving in our faith or our children thriving in their faith is the world in which we live. And we're right to be concerned in not following the ways of this world. Romans 12, don't be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world. But the veil that Paul is talking about is not a worldly veil, it is a religious veil. And I think that's an important distinction for us as well. It is a religious barrier of the old covenant which becomes a legalistic barrier to Christ until Christ himself breaks it. And this is, this is Paul's testimony. This is why, I think this is why he's so passionate. You know, some of you, I've heard your stories. We finally got this microphone to work and now I can't get it to stay on my head. So give me super glue. Um, I know some of your stories. You know what it is like to try to pursue Christ in a lifeless void of legalism. And it stinks. Because how good is good enough, and how often is often enough? And you, you know, you're you're, put, you're punching the spiritual clock, and you're amassing all of the the burden of legalism for a weight that you were never intended to carry. And then some of you that are in this room would say, "Yeah, I was 35 years old. I was 40 years, whatever." When I came to that aha moment of God removing the veil from my life, and I realized this is about the fullness of Christ. This is about life in the Spirit. This is about the presence of God. And it's awesome when we finally get this. Now should you think that this notion of infusion of gospel freedom is Paul's bias, or perhaps even my own, let me take you to the mission statement of Jesus. Like when Jesus began his earthly ministry, it's one of my favorite passages. In Luke chapter four, he's in the spirit. He's fighting with the devil and then he comes back full of the spirit and he's ready to begin this ministry. He goes to the synagogue, begins preaching, begins reading from Isaiah 61. You guys know the story. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and everybody's quiet and they're not sure what to do. And he says, by the way, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The title of that passage of scripture that I call the mission statement of Jesus and other people have called it that, is Jesus rejected and he is rejected by the religious authorities who are not ready and they want to hold on to their veiled existence. But Jesus is about freedom. Jesus doesn't come, he says, I didn't come to get rid of the law because some of us get worried. Oh man, we're going to talk about freedom and then all kinds of stuff's going to happen and it's going to be chaos and craziness or whatever. Jesus actually said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. Here's the great promise. We're going to end the message here just so you understand, give you a little preview. The great promise is throughout history, God's looking at his people and saying, the issue is that the external law is never going to change your life. I'm going to write this law on your heart. I'm going to, I'm like, I'm going to fill your life with the spirit of God so that now this is going to work itself from the inside out. And that is essentially the heart of the new covenant and why we have freedom in Christ. Let me talk about freedom for just a minute. Uh, Freedom expressed in our daily lives, I think, looks like a lot of things. But let me give you a couple. Number one, we are no longer slaves to fear. That is a freedom statement in Christ. I know what it is like to grapple with fear. I know what it is like to wrestle with fear. Many of you do, all of you, all of you do at one level or another. But my life does not need to be defined by fear. That is a free freedom statement in Christ. My life is uh, no longer uh, in bondage to sin. All of the things that the external law was unable to do to motivate me or move me out or guilt me out or shame me out or whatever of my old nature ways I actually now have the life of Christ inside of me. Now, some of you are thinking, look, I'm still dealing with fear. I'm still dealing with sin and everything like that. I am still dealing with those things too. I'm gonna talk to you about process in just a second. But let me give you a couple other ones. Those are the big ones. If I would say to people, like, what does it look like to have a life of freedom? Freedom from fear, that's big. Freedom not having bondage to sin, if we're honest about our bondage to sin, that's big. Um, Here's another one, though. How about freedom to experience joy even amidst the messiness of people's lives? Now, I realize that you all don't have any messes. I obviously don't have any messes. I'm good. But there are people out there that do, and if they would come to our church because we're a church on mission and we want to, bring them into relationship with Jesus and if they showed up, then we'd actually have some messes that we'd have to deal with here. I'm being a little facetious with you. Y'all can laugh, it's okay. But we can still find joy among the messes. When you have to roll up your sleeves and you get into people's lives and you realize this is not easy and this is not good necessarily. This is not fun always, but this this is part of church on mission. This is part of being able to go into the mess. This is what Jesus explicitly did. Incarnating himself in the middle of the mess and then giving himself for it. So joy amidst the mess. How about this one freedom statement? God at work is more important than my sense of order. You know, messes are disorderly by nature you deal with people's lives and you deal with circumstances you deal with things you're like eh, I'm not even quite sure how to handle this one it's nuanced, it's challenging, it's difficult but, but what if God is at work there what if just, just brainstorm me for a moment, with me for a moment what if it was possible that God was at work outside our system of what we think he should be doing being a little facetious again of course he's, he's doing that all the time. And so part of the freedom in Christ is that we can actually go after that and say it seems like God is, is doing something here and I don't have to fight it or squelch it or run from it. That is very much a veiled response because it messes with our sense of control. And how about this one? Freedom, freedom statement. Taking the things of God seriously without taking ourselves seriously overly seriously. Do you know what I mean by that? Some of you are like I don't know what you mean by that. <laughs> Cuz you're taking yourself too seriously right now. Sometimes we do that. You know, like we, we want to take the things of God seriously. Religious people want to take the thing of God seriously, the things of God seriously. Veiled-hearted people want to take the things of God seriously. It actually makes them feel very much in control when they feel like they're taking the things of God seriously. But the joy of following Christ is we actually get to not overburden ourselves with a sense of over-self-importance. Some of the people that I admire most, and you probably do too, some of the people that I admire most are older than me And yet as they're going in their life, and they take God very seriously, and they go after God passionately and everything, but it seems like they're becoming more childlike, not childish, but more childlike as they get older. I think that's actually a mark of maturity because we're experiencing the freedom of Christ, the freedom to be set free from expectation and several other things. So taking the things of God seriously without taking ourselves too seriously, these are freedom statements. Now, don't be discouraged if you're still in process. Some of you that are saying, yeah, I still got a little fear. Or, I'm still dealing with sin issues. I'm still with, like, we're all dealing with that, right? You are in process. That's it. Oswald Chambers calls this the bent of regeneration, and he makes this statement that I find very interesting. He says, referencing Galatians 2.20, when Paul says the life which I now live in the flesh, and Paul wrote Second uh, Corinthians as well, so same guy. When Paul says the life which I now live in the flesh, he is not talking about the life that Paul is going to live when he gets to heaven, but the life he now lives in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's like a right now thing. That's why when we talk about kingdom come, when Jesus said repent for the kingdom of God is near, the resurrection of Christ was the introduction of the kingdom of God now. And so we start growing into the freedom in Christ that we have even now. So number two, we're we're infused with gospel freedom. Let's just do the last one. We are transformed by God's glory. The veil comes off, verse 18 says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Now, I don't know about you, but in many ways, this is a bit of a like, wow. Like This is a a moment because when we really think about the, the implications of this, it means that the process of God's grace in your life it means that you are not the same person today as you were two years ago. And you're not the same person as you will be six months from now. Why? Because you are being transformed. The the, the crazy thing about this is, most of us don't like change to one degree or another. Some people actively resist any kind of change in their life. The problem with that mindset is it is not the way that God has designed us. He, has, he is in the process of transforming us, which is by definition change. And I'm thankful for it. Frankly, you probably are too. It's just not easy. You are being transformed. Transformed some of you played with Riggen if you played with transformers when you were growing up transformers the best the best toy on tv not the most practical toy to play with if you like you know they change from cars to robots to whatever planes and stuff like that but when you play with them it's like on tv they change like really fast and when you play with them in real life it's like I'm a robot and I'm going to become a car like t- 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 4 minutes later you're like the wheels I can't You know what I mean? Not practical. Not as fun to play with as to watch, perhaps. You are in the process of being transformed. If you are in Christ, you are in the process of being transformed. That's the deal. That's the joy. The veil comes off, and we begin to move from one glory to another glory. We're we're actually experiencing the reality of the presence of God. How, how does this happen? Let me give you just a couple. I'll do it quickly. You are transformed in prayer when you are receiving from the Father, when you are filled by the Holy Spirit, when you are touching the heart of the Savior. These are the things that we are endeavoring to do as we pray, and it changes us when we do it. We're being transformed in prayer. We're being transformed in worship. Even, even today, it doesn't matter the kind of style of worship you like and was this performed well or not performed well. I'm talking about when you stand in the presence of God in worship, which you can do on your own. You can do that corporately. You can do that with any kind of style uh, of music, if, if it's actually a, a musical experience. Transformed in worship. Standing in His presence. Realigning with the Creator. Creator as the created. It is transforming. God is actually doing it. You thought you were just singing songs. But God actually works in those experiences to transform you. We are transformed in service. We're not just meeting needs, but we are becoming the hands and the feet of Jesus. You are the body of Christ. Each one of you has a part in it. In fact, I would say it this way. Perhaps the worst thing that we can do if we want to be serious about being a church on mission is to stop becoming... Some of us haven't had that conversation with the Lord maybe for a while. Lord, what are you desiring to work in me and do around me and through me? This is a part of our becoming in our unveiled way of being. C.S. Lewis said this in The Weight of Glory. Remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You are becoming. You are transforming. That is a part of Church on Mission conformed to his image. I was reading a devotional, I'm going to close with this, um, from Desiring God, and it talked about the old covenant, because Paul says here, we're ministers of this new covenant. Well, the old covenant, the gracious enabling power to obey God, was not poured out as fully as it is since Jesus. To this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear. That's Deuteronomy chapter 29. What's new about the new covenant is not that there are no commandments, but that God's promise has come true. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Jeremiah 31. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Ezekiel 36. Um, you heard in the announcements that next, uh, next week we, uh, we've got a little special... Gathering that we're going to be doing. Let me just tell you the story of why that was put on, on my heart um, as we close. A couple of months ago, I was praying for the church and I was praying with our staff and um, praying for our staff and for the church, for myself. And you know, sometimes, again, those aha moments when the Lord just draws your attention to something. What was prayed was, Lord, help us to remember that we are the, the clay, you're the potter. And I was immediately drawn to that. Like it was just something, this doesn't happen all the time in my prayer life, but I was immediately just kind of stuck there. And I started thinking about like all the benefits of, of being clay that, that that actually is workable. You know what I mean? Like the, the idea that to have a soft heart and to be moldable and to allow to and then to think that your life is actually being like formed by the hand of God. This was this powerful statement, and so I was, I was. got done, we got done praying, and I was like, I just feel like we need to kind of look into that a little bit, what was sort of so powerful about that moment, and through a couple of conversations with staff, we came to Michael Ferris and this ministry, and so he's going to be sharing some things next week, and I would love for you to come in, um, you know, with a sense of, Lord, what, what is my heart? What, what do you want to mold in me? But this is where church on mission gets very practical and real, because you have people in your life that need to hear that message. We got these little cards at the, at the uh, info center. You can grab those. I, I've got a neighbor that I'm thinking about. That I think, I, I really want to make sure that they're aware of this. Maybe they'll come, maybe they won't, but I want to make sure that they're aware of this, because I feel like this could be really, really good for them, opportunity for them to encounter the Lord. This is a part of church on mission. So we're going to give you an opportunity to do that. But first, we're going to go to the communion table, and we're going to celebrate the new covenant in Christ. I'd like to pray for us as we get our hearts ready. Worship team can come up and join us here. Uh, Simple instruction that I would give is this. Uh, If you're a follower of Christ today, you've put your faith in him. The communion table is open to you no matter whether you're a part of this church or maybe you're visiting from another church or whatever. We welcome you to participate with us. If you have never made a commitment of your life to Jesus Christ, we would ask you not to take communion. Scripture tells us not, tells you not to. And here's why you're acknowledging a sacrifice that you haven't yet received. And that is actually not a prohibition to say, stay away. It's actually an invitation to say, receive the sacrifice. That's right where where you are. You can do that. Say, Lord, I just receive your finished work. I receive the new covenant work. And today might be the day that you say, how did I not know this before? But the Holy Spirit of God quickens something in you. Say, wow, the broken body of Christ is for me. The shed blood of Christ is for me. That's what we're celebrating when we remember communion. Okay, So if that's you today, you've never made that commitment, take some time right now. Say, Lord, I receive your finished work on my behalf. I will make that my standing, the righteousness of Christ. Forgive me of my sin. I set it aside. I look to you and see what God wants to do. Then meet him at the communion table. Okay, Let's pray together, and then Amy, if you would come and, and join me, we're gonna lead communion together. So Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Lord, that you have... Um, in so many of our lives and in so many ways you have removed the veil that caused us to not see your glory or not show your glory and Lord I pray that you would continue to do that my heart needs more work and the continual invitation to come back and to be refined and to be restored and renewed and to be made new because of the finished work of Jesus we just want to receive that well today so Lord I pray that as we look to you that you would meet us and we pray in Jesus name